This episode of Ragcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Radcast Outdoors. I'm Patrick Edwards. And I'm David Merrill. Hey, man, it's good to have you back. Uh, <laughs> it's good to be back, you know. Almost three months of on the road hotels, different trade shows. It's a, uh, <laughs> it's quite the, uh, you know, it's fun for a day. It's it's all right for a weekend, but uh, there's a point in time it's nice to be in in your bed. I agree, hundred <laughs> percent. I haven't been gone as long of periods, but definitely been gone a lot more than I'd like to be, and it's nice to be home. Although the weather is a little frightful today, we uh, we went from having 40s and 50s to we're going to be at what minus 15. You said, yeah. So it's a uh, old man. Winter says I'm not done yet. We do this every year though, Patrick. Oh, it, we get uh, this false spring and gives me a false hope. I I'm outside <laughs> doing yard chores in a t-shirt and I cut a bunch of firewood the other day and I was sweating in in a yeah. t-shirt and. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad I'm not out there today cutting firewood. Well, that was like last night. We restocked the porch with firewood, the kids and I, and I was sweating. It was 45 degrees, you know, at 430. And it's like, man, it's, <laughs> there's a reason I did it yesterday and not today because it's the wind chill values are sub-zero already. Well, my stash is getting down to uh, about two pickup loads and, you know, we'll, we'll be fine. But <laughs> it definitely this time of year, you start looking at that pile as it starts dwindling and going, uh, now we can heat with uh backup fuels but there's nothing like coming inside from a, a minus 15 day whether you're ice fishing coyote hunting sledding or just i don't know driving home and go stand next to the wood stove for a moment oh for sure i also want to say a big shout out and thank you to our sponsors um pk lures and high mountain seasonings have renewed their sponsorship so thank you guys so much for keeping this show on the air yeah we do appreciate it it's huge and we've got some exciting things coming this summer with that so we'll keep you guys posted as that goes along but today i thought it'd be kind of cool to sit down and talk about something that came up in cheyenne when i was down there i was down there meeting with the three branches of government as part of my leadership wyoming program and we were talking about how fishing hunting hiking camping everything in the outdoors has really increased increased in participation levels and there's a big discussion going on at the state government level of okay well we know this is happening so what do we do about it and also influx of people to wyoming montana idaho the whole rocky mountain region and, and there's a whole bunch of unintended consequences good and bad that go along with that i mean mm -hmm. i do know for this state you know you've got oil and gas you've got farming and ranching and you've got tourism that's I mean, there's a little bit of, uh, with oil and gas, there's some mining, but that's our economy, right? And so what makes up, not the lion's share, but a big portion is, is people coming here to recreate whatever that may be and whatever time of year. And so, you know, like, again, with increased pressure on that whole system, and we'll, we'll get into that a little further, but that's, it's good and bad. Yeah. And I was reading an article from In Fisherman and uh, it kind of confirmed some of the things that I had noticed as far as fishing participation goes. I mean, and we're actually in the Rocky Mountain region. We've seen less of it than we have in other places. So according to this article, 
the South Atlantic region, so you're talking like Florida, that area of the country has seen a 19% increase since the beginning of the pandemic in fishing participation. And this, this is looking at both freshwater and saltwater. And then also the Pacific region, so your Washington, Oregon, California has seen about an 11% increase. And the Rocky Mountains where we are, it's been about 8%. And I remember when COVID hit that, you know, I would go down and I would go fishing and some of the areas that I would normally fish, I would maybe see two or three other people. And I was seeing a dozen, two dozen extra people down there. And I mean, it, it really was and is continues to be a big impact. So one thing I noticed right at the beginning of COVID and Owen talked to several game wardens around here is we had a ton of uh, license plates from out of state coming you know, camping was still open. The national forests were still open parks. And, you know, the thing they said was they've never seen more shed hunters up in the spring ever and more mm-hmm. camp. The campgrounds were, were, you know, pretty well full. Oh, they were full. Yeah. And it wasn't license plates from Wyoming. That's, right. That was a little frustrating in the beginning. Now it's, I no longer care. Yeah, it's, there's a ton of out-of-state pressure. I mean, you look at the dynamic that we have here in Wyoming, I mean, most of our land is public, whereas a lot of states, most of the land is private, like especially if you're out in the Midwest, right? No, we're way, we're, you know, it's here, it's 70 some percent, don't quote me, but you go back to some of those states, it's 90% private, it's exactly flipped the other way. So there is no, just go out and go camp and cut your firewood and enjoy the outdoors, which is, I think the main reason I live here. Yeah, one of my classmates is a deputy director of the Game and Fish, and she and I were visiting about this. So, hi, Angie, if you're listening to this. But uh, she came from Iowa, and, you know, they have over 90% of the land is private. And then coming to Wyoming, which is the other extreme where most of it's public, you know, it's a totally different environment. And, and we were talking about the impacts of, you know, just more pressure Um, It's good for the game and fish. Obviously, they're selling more licenses. So that's a good thing because they're getting more revenue. But I'm also seeing on my end of it being, you know, a consumptive person that's, you know, going fishing is that there are less fish. And that's as a result of, you know, a lot more pressure, you know, being at the boat ramp and having to wait longer and, you know, maybe having to get on a few more months. And this is no joke, but a few more months in advance to book your stay at a state park is is tough being a local, but um, there's a lot of policy discussions going on um, at the state level. And I know it's happening in other states like Montana and Idaho as well of what do we do about this? Because it is, it is different. I've talked to people who are also at the federal level. They're talking about trailheads for the forest service entry areas, you know, like up on the Pinedale side going into the Wind Rivers. It was just hammered this last year. I mean, there were people everywhere and people weren't cleaning up after themselves. So they're trying to figure out, okay, so what do we do about that? Not to drag this on for hours, but I, I didn't, I wasn't born and raised here in Wyoming, Patrick, right? I spent, mm-hmm. I spent a good stint in Alaska, but I only went to Alaska to get away from policies and procedures in Oregon. And, you know, hunting is a great tool. It's a great conservation tool because seasonally, our biologists set quotas and limits and we adjust that based on her dynamics, you know, seasonally. That's, that's awesome. And that works and that system works really well. And there's a whole bunch of science and data and evidence to point to the North American wildlife conservation model and how well implemented it, it is, you know, so growing up in Oregon, very simply put, 
the whole state was over-the-counter tags, over-the-counter hunting, um, pretty decent populations, and for a myriad of reasons, we've talked about some on this podcast, um, the hunting quality just went down. Now, if you actually look really closely at the data and statistics, hunter numbers didn't go up. They actually fell slightly, but, but overall, the quality just wasn't there. You know, you're looking at, and now I heard the other day, they've gone to pretty much the whole state as a draw archery or rifle. There's some limited west side, but, you know, you're, you're talking in the single digits on success rates where some units here, I mean, depending on the tag, you're a majority of the people that go out over 50% are, are filling their tags. Now, some units are 30, 20. It depends on where, what, why, and when. But I guess what I'm getting at is I can drive down buy a tag over the counter and go hunting with my buddies in the fall versus if we go to a complete draw system which has to happen when you have overwhelming human pressure right you have to limit the number of hunters that are out there i mean it gets to the point where if you only get to go every four five six seven years with your buddies that atmosphere of going every fall and putting meat in your freezer that livelihood goes away and that's It's something hard to see go away from our country, I guess. You know, just growing up, always getting to go catch fish in the summer, go get a deer in the fall. It's just what you did, right? Yeah. I think the fishing side, you know, for me, you talk about, you know, sustainability of that. I worry about it to some degree just because the state doesn't have unlimited funds to stock reservoirs. And it takes time for fish populations to grow and for fish to grow. So I do worry about that. Even if they had unlimited funds and they had all the populations, if somebody comes in and, you know, there's some pretty liberal quotas, bag limits on certain species of fish. And we've talked about that on other podcasts. The the wrong group of people in the wrong mindset could go in and pretty well hammer a brook trout, a rainbow, a walleye, (laughs) in any species. If they were just there every other day, picking on them and taking their limit home and, I mean, then you start seeing people that show up in the morning and get a limit and then decide to go show up that evening in a different reservoir and get another limit. That's that's not okay. You know, yep. those limits are set so that everybody can enjoy a little bit. Yeah, but there are some positives to this as well. Like you look at fish participation being up. The hope is that people, more people are getting exposed to fishing and hunting and outdoor activities, which is what we want because you want to larger lobby group essentially for the sports so i i'm not saying that all of this is negative for sure there's a lot of positive here i know on the revenue side it's been incredibly helpful to the game and fish department here locally because now they have more funds they're talking about putting in a new fish hatchery so there's a lot of positives that do come with that um the one thing i would talk about though on the fishing side keep in mind is just just remember to be responsible we did a podcast on you know, just being a good person out there on the water. So clean up after yourself, you know, do those kind of things. Cause I think that that's, that's going to be more important as we go forward. Like I can think about just not too long ago, I took my kids fishing and somebody had left a mess and it's like, that's going to be more common unless we really, you know, just kind of self police. Yeah. I think, you know, that old guard needs to really step up that ambassador mode, right? And really just, if you've been in a spot for 10 years, fishing or hunting or hiking or camping or whatever it is, and there's somebody there, it's public land. You know, it's it's not your spot. It's definitely not the right time or place to get in a fight or argument over it. Go enjoy it and go move on. And I've I seen some stuff, you know, opening days are usually a, they 
pick an arbitrary day or a weekend or a Saturday and somebody shows up Thursday night to save their campsite. Great. Awesome. You know, planning ahead. And if you pull in Friday night at 10 p.m. hoping to get your favorite camping spot for the last 10 years, you know, with more pressure, there's going to be a little more work required to be successful. Uh, I saw along that same uh, lines of the article you pulled up, I found one, uh, the Council to Advise Hunting and Shooting Sports. They did a pretty extensive report. They polled 40 state wildlife agencies, and it looks like since COVID, hunting license sales are up between 5 and 6% pretty much across the United States, which that inflection of cash, what I've seen is hunting is somewhere in the single digits, three to 5% of the U.S. population. If we could get one more percent, I, I realize that that puts pressure on the system and there's the negatives, but there's some great positives of fully funding wildlife agencies, fully funding, you know, you've seen the boat ramps that are deteriorating. You've mm-hmm. seen the underfunded understock everything a little bit of cash inflection could really getting some of these trailhead you know the roads especially here in wyoming trying to drive a horse trailer up to some of those trailheads i mean you can tell that late 70s early 80s we had a much more extensive usable forest network than we do today yeah i think too the thing that hit me on some of these numbers that was interesting is that (laughs) fishing trips based on the individuals the average trips that an individual is taking was down and i think that makes sense when you think about the data right you've got a lot of people who are first timers who are answering this survey who've only gone once or twice but they've gone so they count as another person going but then they drag the average down because like if you were to ask somebody like me last year was a rough year and i went fishing 50 times you know i typically going 60 to 80 maybe on a really exceptional year i'm going going close to 100 times that's a big difference than somebody who's brand new to it and they go once you know they're going to drag that average down so it did make sense i was looking at that data it makes sense that more people went but also the the average number of times that anglers went went down and i would say to those newbies that are out there that it's a learning curve no matter what species what weapon and what you're trying to do right but you're not going to catch a fish without a line in the water And the way to fill more elk tags is to get more elk tags and spend more days (laughs) out in the woods, right? Yeah, you actually have to go to make it work. But real quick, let's talk about one of our sponsors. So let's talk about Bowspider. I know you've been very busy getting dealer orders and individual orders out the door, but you guys have been staying pretty busy. We're staying really busy. I'm really positive, looking forward to another great year. It's sunshine and rainbows as far as Bowspider is concerned. We've been under the gun and under the pressure to keep up with demand, which is good. We've got dealer orders and we've got lots of customers, but I've been on the road, I don't know, 30, 40 days and meeting and seeing and greeting. And there's a lot of customers out there that are just happy to have their bow spider. And the common thing I heard, I despise this is, you know, game changer, because that is an overused term in this industry by couple thousand percent but bow spider really will change the way you bow hunt so what are some of these retailers that you guys have brought on board we've got a pretty extensive list on the website a couple big box stores i really like supporting the local mom and pop bow shops or your pro shop those guys are the ones that are gonna be answering the calls when you have a 911 bow emergency or anything between i gotta get this product because i'm leaving tomorrow i've heard stories of several dealers we had a bunch of customers wanting us to overnight packages and that was 
more than a nightmare several packages lost not my fault right mm. i handed it to ups and it just disappeared or i handed it to the postal service and gone and here you've got a customer waiting they're leaving three days to go on their trip and they can't get their product well we had them just call a couple different dealers that are along their route to their hunt pay for the product over the phone and the dealer said hey we'll put it in location x and they could pull in after hours and pick their product up and go down the road so no dealer numbers are up showing a lot of growth i got my first saddle and so tree stands are they're cool but they take a lot of prep work kind of pre post and during uh, saddles you can kind of walk in with basically a lineman's belt and some cleats and walk up a tree and harvest a deer so we have some really cool options for saddle hunters to use bow spider obviously i mean i wouldn't say it's mandatory elk hunting but once you bring one of these into your system and incorporate it and use it it really will change the way you elk hunt that's awesome so again go to bowspider.com you can get your very own bow spider and it doesn't matter if you're a 3d shooter or bow hunter it'll help you uh save your arms and get your hands free so one of the other things that we were talking about as far as like i guess just the changing landscape of the outdoors we were talking about parking we were talking about boat ramp accessibility we were talking about just all the things that come with more people in the field and some of the issues that people don't think about so i have family that are involved in this and so i can speak to it a little bit more than the layperson. but you think about like if you're at a state park or something like that you have sanitation. That's a huge deal. I know this last year in Wyoming, we had a lot more of that that had to be done, right? You have to pump the tanks at the facilities that people use to go to the restroom. You have a lot more trash to haul off. So costs are going up for these agencies and they're having to figure out the balance of what actually makes sense to charge people to come and use these spaces. So I was just curious what your thoughts were on that because it's definitely something that is increasing it's not decreasing so i can remember floating the kasilov river in kenai alaska and i got a little frustrated one day driving down to the river thinking about it i have a driver's license a registered vehicle with a tag on the license plate of the truck i have a drift boat with a tag on the drift boat and a trailer plate on the trailer with a tag on it you then have to have a fishing license you then have to have a salmon tag to go with your fishing license with a king salmon stamp on the back of that and then you have to pay for a parking pass and a pay for a boat launch fee and then the takeout was private so you had to pay the private fee and then you had to either schedule your own shuttle or hire a shuttle back and forth plus you had to buy bait and so i started looking at all the things and i just started tallying up in my brain you know all the different and if you're out there fishing and doing this and trying to do a cost benefit analysis of you know i had to buy the fuel and the tax and the fuel and the boat and the rods and the reels and the lures and the tax on all that if you're trying to justify that king salmon based on cost you're not going to be enjoying yourself right How many different pieces of paper and numbers do I have to be identified by so that I can go on quote unquote public water and go catch a public fish? And those are hatchery released fish, uh, some places, some of those fish. And so, you know, now you're, and the hatchery programs are great. You know, they're kind of self-funded, they're state funded. They really do bolster some of those fish species and really for the consumptive user, those fish were put there to be taken. And so you're not really impacting the the wild species that in some places are struggling. So it all amalgamated together that that one trip. Yeah, I was a little bit frustrated with everything, right? Because what if I didn't bring my driver's license? What if I didn't pay the parking fee? What 
what if I didn't have my tags on the side of my boat while I'm going down the river, right? Or have your fishing license. What if that day I just didn't want to pay the private guy to take out? Well, it's another three miles of tidal water out to the public boat ramp, which is out on the beach. Well, tidal water is tidal water. You might be going, you might be trying to row down and be blown and the tidal pushing you back up and you're going upstream faster than you're going downstream. So that private takeout was right at tidewater. So it was the end of the drift and it just, it made more sense, right? If you timed everything perfect, yeah, you could, you could pass that and go the next three miles and get out. But if you timed it wrong, that extra three miles, which should be an hour float could be six hour float, right? I think all those things are in place and you know, they all benefit for a reason. And I'm not advocating for removing any of those. I'm just stating that we could benefit by having more people pay into that and then see fees decreased a little bit. So instead of a fishing license being 20 bucks, if we increased fishing members by 50%, you already touched on it. We're not going to increase total fishing days 50% because guys like you that are doing 50 fishing days and there's people that go, they've got free fishing weekend for kids, right? They're Mm -hmm. trying to do that recruitment, and that is important. I touched a little earlier on that whole Oregon dynamic, right? And we could talk for probably five podcasts about it. But one of my frustrations I saw is the older demographic was aging out, and they're used to much higher success rates, much lower pressure. And one of the things that gets wrapped up in this that I want to touch on is there's a whole bunch of railroad checkerboard ground all across eastern and western Oregon. There's a bunch here too. Mm-hmm. And there's some legislation going on with that. But specifically in the Cascades and the Coast Range of Oregon, they've now put timber company locked gates and you now pay a $350 access fee to basically access 50% public ground. And that has really reduced the limit of, of opportunity, right? You used to be able to go outside of Solette's, Coos Bay, Alsea, Albany, Lebanon, Salem, Eugene, you get half hour, 15 minutes outside of any of those, and you were able to get on a logging road and drive all day and access tons and tons of ground. And we saw Willamette Industries get bought out by Warehouser, and Warehouser is foreign owned, and they basically said no foreigners on our ground. And I've had more than my fair share of encounters with them. And I, I moved away, Patrick. I moved to Alaska specifically because I saw roads that were open all year round go access public ground, turn into... And and what's really sad is you'll see some of those remote gates, they're locked, right? And it's a 20-foot wide gate, and somebody will pull up and dump two pickup loads of trash right in front of the gate. And the timber company gets to remove all that. I know that was a little long-winded to get to my point, but my my point is I don't want to see decreased access, decreased opportunity, and increased fees. Yeah, no, we don't want to see that. It's just we have to find a balance someplace because, I mean, the fact of the matter is it costs money to operate state parks and to upkeep trailheads and keep toilets clean and make sure boat ramps have good docks that work. And some of these things are very expensive. Like you talk about the game and fish, just looking at a new fish hatchery, that's 10 million bucks. And I mean, will it pay for itself over time? Sure. But $10 million to ensure, you know, that you have... The adequate but fish there, there's other programs need. hold on let me fin- yeah, hold, let me finish you gotta have an, the capacity to meet the demands that are being put on your waters so like you look at sauger for instance you know sauger a few years ago were in a really bad place the numbers were super low there are native fish species and the game of fish was like hey we got to do something about this so they did and they went and they got some more fish. They did capture some bigger fish here to do a stocking program. They worked with North Dakota, but that's very expensive. 
and they had to outsource a lot of that. Like right now we buy a whole bunch of walleye from North Dakota. Well, it would make a lot more sense if we were rearing them here in Wyoming so that we could stock our own lake. But it is something that we have to look at. There's going to be some big short-term investments to keep up with the demand in order to keep places like Glendo, Gray Rocks, Ocean Lake, some of these bodies of water, they get hammered by out-of-state fishermen. We've got to find some way to keep those numbers up. And I agree. And I think the revenue side is great. The you know new blood, new engagement coming in is overall a positive thing. Thing. Yeah, you're that local extirpation. Your your one local fishing hole may see some extra pressure, and so it's time to go find some less known spots. At some point in time, there's not going to be any more less known spots. There's going to be somebody everywhere, right? Yep. You and I have talked about I, when I'm hiking up a trail to go elk hunting. I don't want to see other boot tracks in the trail, and if there is, I'm highly considering going somewhere else. So, but some of these programs that touch on your point of you know, yeah, I think we shouldn't be investing, reinvesting, renewing some of that infrastructure, making sure that those hatcheries are got a biologist and got staff and are stocked, and if they need a new piece of equipment to make it more efficient, let's get it in there. Yeah, but that takes that funding piece and there's always going to be projects the game and fish does that you know what came to mind while you were talking was predators never make any money predator management now we could discuss the merits of predators long into the sunset but simply put the state values an elk at a thousand dollars that's what they charge for a non-resident tag actually 1200 for the top tier elk tag in wyoming what do they charge for a wolf tag 50 bucks a wolf's eating i don't know 5 10 15 elk a year so a wolf is eating fifteen thousand dollars worth of elk and he's worth 50 bucks I mean, your, your predator management is never going to be a self-sustaining, self-sunding, paying system. And so that the management that has to be done on that, whether it's, I guess, justified, unjustified, I'm not going to get into the merits of exactly what they're doing with the wolves. What I'm just trying to highlight is somebody's getting paid, somebody's buying diesel and tires on a truck to go out in the woods to check on wolves, whatever they're doing. And that wolf is never going to fund that guy's wage and the equipment that it took to get there, right? That comes from license sales from other species, right? And it's, but there's that, that overall benefit of if they improve Boyson Lake for rainbow trout, how many species are in there that feed on those rainbows? Quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, and they did put in this year some kokanee, which will be interesting to see how they do. They put in some Bonneville cutthroat trout as well, which have not been in there. So it'll be interesting to see just with the stocking program and some of the things that they've tried this year, just to see what happens. But I can tell you the walleye eat their fair share of rainbow trout and kokanee salmon. And I mean, and a lot of other things too, but. And I can tell you, Patrick eats his fair share of walleye. <laughs> I try every once in a while, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it shakes. Out. I just see there's definitely a conflict at the state level here and in some of our neighboring states of having more people coming in is good, but it's also potentially could be not good. And so trying to figure out how to manage that the right way. So the front range in Utah is famous for huge mule deer. All my uncles grew up there and they would go on a weekend hunt and shoot nice deer, not trophy hunting, just meat hunting, right? Right. You can't hardly draw one of those tags. You can't hardly get one. Now it still produces a few really big deer because the habitat 
is still there, but their winter range has been decimated. You look at Utah has three of the fastest growing five counties in the nation and the housing prices are astronomical, the people moving in. And I bring this up because all summer I was at all these different events and all these states that were locked down, all the bow hunters said, oh, you're from out west. How is it? We're thinking about moving there. One in three people is thinking about moving away from 90% private land to somewhere with 70% public land. And that's going to have an impact, whether we like it or not. And we're not going to stop. Yeah. I think that's a good point is that we're not going to be able to stop it, but how do we manage it the best way possible? And I think part of the heartburn for me is as a local, I mean, I'm Wyoming through and through, right? <laughs> this is where I've been my whole life is it's, it's kind of hard for me to see some of the changes just because I remember what it was like when I was a kid. But at the same time, how can we capitalize on this as much as possible to make sure that we do have better fisheries when we come through this and better hunting? Riverton, Wyoming is getting a sportsman's warehouse. Yeah. It's true. At progress. I mean, progress for the sake of progress isn't always great, but competition in the marketplace for anybody and everybody is, is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to go back to something you said, you may have to find some new spots. I mean, I'm already looking at maps and looking at potential new areas to go fish just because it is going to be a lot more pressure. And, you know, I'm not going to wait at the boat ramp for 45 minutes. So, you know, there's going to be some adjustments that I'm going to make this summer, but that's okay. And I I don't have the magic wand and the magic answer and the crystal ball here, but I, I just saw steelhead salmon fishing go from marginal to mediocre in my lifetime leaving Oregon, right? I, and you, you talk about waiting 45 minutes to boat launch. When the fish were actually running, there was days that it was 15 drift boats deep to get launched mm-hmm. on the river. And a couple times we went to a different rivers. I'm not going to throw them under the bus, but they're coastal rivers in Oregon. And we could get on one and not see another drift boat all day. And, that, and we still got fish. Now it wasn't the spot, right? And like one that comes to mind is Buoy 10 on the Columbia. Everybody knows Buoy 10 on the Columbia. You can go out there and there'll be hundreds of boats stacked up when the the salmon start running. But to keep it lighthearted, one thing I really do enjoy is when you get new people out there and they're trying to launch their boat and they've never launched a boat before. You can see some pretty hysterical things. <laughs> I saw some stuff last year and I'm like, oh boy, this will be interesting. <laughs> Every time I see that, I'm reminded of Patrick McManus. <laughs> he tied exactly. his canoe on his boat. He says uh, the one trial of a marriage is, is launching a boat with oh, your boy. spouse. Yeah, I saw a good one last year. They there was a couple they had a brand new really fancy luntai and (laughs) they were having a hard time getting that thing launched and it was just kind of like man that's gonna be a really rough fishing trip (laughs) because i could tell they were not happy with each other but they got it figured out so hopefully they didn't end up in divorce court but you never know just remember patrick ugly boats catch more fish that's right that's why i have an ugly boat Um, (laughs) (laughs) your boat's ugly and your bait stinks (laughs) exactly so hey if you guys are going fishing you should take pk lures they, they got have, some new cool stuff going on they too. got some really cool stuff coming out i was talking to kurt their owner the other day and they've got some fantastic stuff open water season is coming and i can't wait to go out there and try some of these new colors some of these new lures that they have coming out if you're into the walleye fishing especially i mean that's really primarily what they're geared at they have some incredible stuff like if you're wanting to troll crankbaits if you want to troll crawler harness presentations just their crawler harness presentations alone they have like six seven products and i mean you can do really well with that again spinajig i've caught everything on spinajigs you're gonna get lost when you go to their website so just get at least two of every other thing and go out fishing and you'll figure out what works and kurt will be really happy if you do that 
I'll tell you what, the new PK Ridge Rattler, it's like a lipless crankbait. That thing is awesome. And there's been some guys I've been watching online with following their Facebook. They've had some guys up in Manitoba catching 10 and 12 pound walleye through the ice with that thing, just vertically jigging it. So it works. I, I caught some this last spring, just pitching out into the water and reeling back. But I'll tell you what, man, they've got a great lineup. So you can go to PKLure.com, check them out and get geared up for your next fishing trip. So I wanted to kind of segue this just a a little bit and just talk about sustainability just for a few minutes because you talked about over-the-counter tags and you know limited quota areas and so I want you to talk about from the hunting side what does that look like for Wyoming because Wyoming is kind of one of these states that's kind of unique in the fact that we have both so like where you and I are sitting right now is a limited draw area for everything but if you go up into the mountains for elk there are certain areas that are general tags so if you showed up you could buy it over the counter so just kind of talk about maybe what some of the implications are because in Wyoming, if you're buying a general tag and you're a resident, there's a lot more residents buying general tags. So what's the potential impact there on just the hunting areas in Wyoming? So just to clarify, if, if you're not a resident, there's very few over-the-counter opportunities. There's some right. leftover opportunities and there's some other outfitter tags. You have to go with the outfitter. But if you want to hunt elk in Wyoming, you have to put in for a draw and draw the tag. So just clarifying that yeah. right now. And that, that has its whole own litany of arguments and i've heard as a resident i like this program as a non-resident i would hate this program so somebody's screaming at me right now and that's that's okay but to answer your question what i see happening right now i pretty much pick up an elk tag pick up a deer tag a general tag go down here to our local sporting goods stores rocky mountain and say i need my deer tag and elk tag and go hunting right look at the map and go what's general and go hunt there now i've put the wife in for a couple limited entries i've put in for a couple limited entries. Um, my best bowl came from a limited entry area, right? And those limited entry tags are the success is higher, the trophy quality is typically higher, the pressure's less. I mean, it's just overall a better experience. It's still public land, but because it's a limited quota entry area, the biologists are setting that to where they're they're actually trying to manage for some some def- decent harvest numbers. Some of these general areas is just like in one of the elk herds I think about, they have been above management objective for a while. Now it's closer to the park and you've getting some residual elk that are always kind of boosting those numbers from the park and you always will, right? Something that I see on the horizon going to happen and it has to is, you know, you as a resident are going to pick a region for deer and you're probably going to start to pick a region for elk pretty soon. You know, you're not going to get to go to the Bighorns, to the Wind Rivers, to the Owl Creeks, over to the Wyoming Range and down around Saratoga in the same year and hunt elk. You're going to kind of have to start to pick a mountain range. And in some aspects, I think that's the beginning of the end. You know, I like the idea of if I have my general tag, Patrick, and I've got my buddy coming from out of state, I've got you and I've got my father, right? And they're all coming at different times and they all want to go hunt different times. You and I want to go one weekend and you live in town A and somebody lives in town B and somebody else is from out of state and wants to go with me. Having the flexibility to go from Alpine to Cody over to Dubois down to Pinedale and then over to Sundance or anywhere. Having that flexibility is not 
advice. It really is. But as far as I'm sure the fishing game would really like to, you know, because now you don't know where my harvest is at. Where's that true pressure with that general tag versus if you have a limited quota tag, say right here around the house, they give out 100 doe tags and there's not people coming and going kind of willy-nilly. No, I have 100 tags and how many days do I hunt here to fill that tag and how many get filled? And that data over time is really, really useful to those biologists and, and to setting quotas, right? Let's just simply put, there's 100 doe tags right here around our house. They've given them out for 10 years. They've had a 50% success rate. They go out and count deer and they go, oh, we've got extra deer. We're going to give 120 tags this year, knowing that we're going to kill 60 deer or 80 or whatever the, the matrix are. But they can do the same thing as they go see, oh, deer numbers are down a little bit or elk numbers or whatever. They can ratchet that back pretty quickly. In Wyoming, I will have said this before on the podcast, my hat's off to them. They do a great job of setting those bag limits based on herd dynamics, not based on financial implications. And I read an article a long time ago and I don't have it here in front of me. Basically, the premise of the article is wildlife agencies need to be very, very careful about managing any species for money. And this is the pitfall I saw happen in Oregon as revenues declined. And why were revenues declining? Well, overall satisfaction was declining. And opportunity, you went between Portland and and Eugene, you went from maybe a 60-70% public land down to a 20% public land by all those log gates I talked about, right? So now guys that have been hunting vast sections of land for 30 years are, are locked out of it and they are all pigeonholed into little tiny areas. I think of an ice fishing tournament, Patrick, on a lake and then saying, no, you only get to use 10% of the lake. Are you going to continue to go back year after year after year? No, definitely not. So back to the wildlife agencies managing for revenue. That long term is going to end poorly all the way around. That's not the way the system's designed to work. And you know, if it's only about the revenue and we got to get more money in, going to have people like you and people like me who are out there for the experience, when that quality starts to diminish and the price starts to go up, there's going to be a breaking point where people say, I'm going to stay home or I'm going to go to a whole different state that isn't managing that way. Yeah. I think the big thing you're going to see on the hunting side is a lot more limited quota here in Wyoming if we keep going the way we're going, just because general tags, I mean, they'll sell them, sell them, sell them over the counter. They don't know where you're going to go to harvest that animal. It could be any general area. So that's going to definitely affect. So that's why I don't despise the pick a region Mm -hmm. it's more just give the data and they can do that in surveys at the moment right now and to really cement this in people's minds i'm sitting on 13 oregon elk points got 13 years worth of putting in for elk points in Oregon. Now that I'm in a non-resident category, the tags that are worth drawing are anywhere from 18 to 26 points. So I'm now way behind the curveball as far as being able to get a tag. And my opportunity in Montana, Idaho, Wyoming is substantially better at harvesting a trophy mature animal than it is going there. So why am I going to, season is limited, September's four weeks long, why am I going to take and pay Oregon the thousand bucks, burn my 13 elk points on a unit that doesn't have the same potential as a general tag here in this state? Yeah, you won't. I won't. And so, I mean, until they figure that out, and there's there's one more dynamic of predator management. They, in 96, 98, banned hunting mountain lions with dogs and they went from 3,000 cats to 10,000 cats in the span of less than 10 years. Cats are eating 52 deer and elk 
a year, one a week, the elk and deer population went to nothing. I mean, if we were talking boys and lake out here, all of a sudden, all that was left was northerns. That's it. Maybe some walleyes and the trout went from what it is right now, which is a, you can, I don't want to burn it, but you can go catch a master angler rainbow out there with a little bit of work. Mm-hmm. If it went down to, you know, I like to take my kids power bait fishing. Why? They're three and eight, and they don't have the attention span to really, you know, they're not going to go trophy fishing with you and I for one fish all day. If we can get them on three or four rainbow, great. But if that fishery changes and they change the management to where you're not catching a rainbow, I'm not going. Yeah, there's a lot of things at play, and I think it's going to be interesting to see as things change in our country, because it is. People are moving, people are changing where they want to live, and I don't blame them for that. It's just going to be interesting to see on the policy side how things shake out. And I did want to talk about our other sponsor, High Mountain Seasonings. Man, it's been awesome lately. I've been trying some new things with their seasonings, trying some different recipes, and they have a little bit of everything. And one of the things we hardly ever talk about is their marinades. Um, They have some fantastic marinades that you can buy. They also have different mixes that you can make for like making dips or things like that. Those often get overlooked, but if you're going to host like a March Madness party at your house and watch some games, they have some great dips that you can go buy and just mix in some, you know, sour cream or whatever. But man, they have got just a little bit of everything for every user out there, whether you're making jerky, making burgers, their burger seasoning. I don't know if you've tried their Chipotle burger seasoning, but it is awesome. And so I know you use it a lot so what are some of your favorites the wife has been making uh meatloaf and swedish meatballs Mm -hmm. and she uses their seasoning in there and just rolls them up either way mixes all the stuff she does in there and bakes it in the oven and and i use just lean out no fat ground in it and I like it that way. I'm a huge fan of, and we've talked about it, just the uh, the backstrap on the on the smoker. But mm. obviously, the jerky is a huge fan favorite around here. So there's so many different options. First, you got to get the protein. If you have to go to the grocery store to get it, I feel for you. I'm sorry, but actually, don't go to the grocery store. Find a local beef producer like Tyler yes. McCann. <laughs> yes, just... listen to episode 71 on that. It's so good. I was talking to somebody the other day that had listened to that episode, and they were talking about how they were determined to go find one of their local producers so that they could get their beef that way and i was like all right well then you got to go to high mountain seasonings website and get some stuff to put on it and so it is good and i will give you guys a tip if you're making burgers and you want them to have a little bit extra flavor take that meat put it into a mixing bowl put your seasoning on mix it in really good you won't be disappointed it's so much better than just sprinkling it on it so i'll give you one tip because everybody complains about venison burger falling apart right right? Because it's super lean. It doesn't have the fat to coagulate together and make a nice patty. We take a couple Ritz crackers per pound and an egg with the high mountain seasoning. Mix that all together in a bowl with the elk meat and the egg and the crackers will act as a binder in there. You can even put a little cheese too if you want. Man, that sounds good. We got to stop talking about food. I'm going to get hungry. But anyway, you go to HIMTNJerky.com. Again, HIMTNJerky.com and you can get all set up and ready to go make that next big thing. So... There is one case on the horizon, and I want to bring it up, and I'm not going to say whether I'm for or against. I'm just keeping my eyeballs on it because the implications of this case will be prevalent to Wyoming. 
because of the lawsuit. And I mean, if you're not up to speed on it, I'm not super well versed, but a couple hunters from back east were corner crossing. We talked about this railroad checkerboard ground that basically the railroads got a section for every mile of railroad they produced. And they didn't just get sections right against the railroad because there was some political reasons behind that. But basically one was they didn't want them to have this continuous private swath of ground. So if you look at a map, you can see this checkerboard all over the U.S. and it stems back from the U.S. government trying to stem growth out west, trying to get infrastructure put in. And while there's been land swaps and some things have been done, question comes down to if I come to a corner of these four checkerboard pieces, can I step from one publicly owned piece to the next publicly owned piece? Is that legal or not? And so it's an interesting question that's in the courts and will have an implication on Western land. And I don't remember exactly, but they've looked up and there's a lot of land, millions of acres here in Wyoming that are potentially landlocked if this goes south. Yeah, I actually got to sit down and meet with all the Supreme Court justices from the state of Wyoming and that issue did come up and they said, yep, we're watching it and we're looking at it because, I mean, it does have big implications for hunting and for just access in general because you also have to protect the private landowners as well. And so it's going to be an interesting thing to see how it shakes out, but there's a lot of policy decisions that are on the horizon that are going to make a big impact to Wyoming and to all the Rocky Mountain states, to be honest with you. So it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out out, but it's been good to get back on here and, and talk about some of that. And we do have some other things coming up on the horizon. We'll talk to you about that in another episode. But if you are out there and you're one of these new anglers or hunters and hikers or whatever you might be in the outdoors, just encourage you to be respectful and be responsible. You know, when you go out to these areas, be kind to each other and clean up after yourself. There's plenty of mentors out there, but yeah, just that old golden rule and definitely leave it better than you found it. And yep, we'll be awesome. All right, guys. Well, until next time, we'll come back with another episode here shortly. Thanks for being patient with us. If you want to help the podcast, one of the best ways that you can do that is to subscribe. You can do that on our website. You can go to Podbean, which is our host, and do it there. You can do it through Apple. You can do it through Spotify. There's a whole bunch of places that you can do that. I also do accept five-star ratings. I think David still takes five-star ratings for our podcast too, don't you, David? Yeah. Yeah, so (laughs) give us a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. That helps us out a ton. And again, we'll catch you guys next time.